Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome you to Waukesha Bible Church. I know we've already gone through our greetings, but it is a joy to have you with us this morning. We are looking at Exodus chapter 14. A primary idea within the text is picked up in verse 4. We will reflect on it in just a moment. But when God is honored, God is honored when he is known, when he is acknowledged as Yahweh. And I'm wanting to always make sure that we take our text and we place it inside the larger storyline of the scripture. It is important that any text is examined inside of its context. The structure of the scripture is very intentional, and it is the structure of scripture that gives us the emphasis. And it is the emphasis of a text, of the storyline, that enables us to hear the voice of the Spirit, because the Spirit of God is speaking to us this morning through the text of scripture. If we were to compare Genesis with the book of Exodus, in the book of Genesis, we end with the story of Joseph. Joseph is, in many ways, a whisper. God is working behind the scenes. He is acting, and we have that statement in Genesis 50 where Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. God is, in a sense, working behind the scenes, and that work behind the scenes is acknowledged by Joseph, and there's a sense in which it is a whisper. But by the time we get to Exodus, after hundreds of years pass, the Exodus itself is a bang. Many of you are probably aware of the August 4th uh, Port of Beirut, Lebanon explosion. 2,700 tons of ammonia nitrate exploded in a blast that was reportedly felt as far away as Cyprus. The strength of the explosion was one of the most powerful non-nuclear explosions in history. It has already claimed more than 200 people and injured thousands. It created a shockwave that severely damaged roads and buildings, shattering glass for miles. In the densely populated city of more than 2 million people, 300,000 people were immediately displaced. If you have not seen a video of it, I would encourage you to do so. It's not to intensify or glorify the tragedy, but in a sense to give you a context, an historical context for the Exodus event. When you think of the ten signs and wonders, the tenth sign being the death of the firstborn and the sacrificing the Passover offering, that is an explosion. It is a bang. And the repercussions of that blast is felt for miles and is felt throughout time. The trauma of the Beirut bomb is equal to the horror that we felt when the Twin Towers were attacked on September 11th. And it is almost unbelievable that such a thing could indeed happen. And that feeling is the same feeling that they must have had during the Exodus. So when we think of the Exodus, it's important to put it inside of the historical context. Now, when we look at the Exodus, and and I'll note this in a moment, but we typically see it as a singular event. When we think of the Exodus, we think of the parting of the Red Sea. But I'd like to give us a cautionary word concerning the study of the text. And and part of that is just my, my desire to instruct or teach. We must not think when we come to a text like this that every problem we have in our lives is a Red Sea. That somehow every problem we have, God is going to get rid of. 
because that's not true. It's not true in the horizontal. Many of us on a daily basis are dealing with traumatic moments. And we must not think because of this story that somehow God in life is going to part for us every single Red Sea moment. And it's important to realize as well, as we often speak of the vertical and the horizontal, this story is dealing primarily with the vertical. God is making good on his covenant. He's making good on his promise to provide a deliverer who will rescue the people, destroy the enemy, and restore them to the place of rest. So it's important that we understand these ideas. The Bible is not primarily a manual for life. It is primarily descriptive, not prescriptive. It is primarily dealing with our vertical relationship with God, and then after that, our horizontal relationship with one another. We are wrong as Christians in thinking God is working for your best life now. This is not your best life now. The best is still yet to come. We are Christians. We hope in the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what God has done for us in the vertical is answer the one question that we cannot answer for ourselves, the sin and death question. That has impact. It has consequences in the horizontal. But the Bible is primarily dealing with the vertical relationship between God and man. When we talk about the exodus, the exodus moment is a hinge moment in the word of God. It's pivotal. As Jacob mentioned, Psalm 66 is referencing that moment. And in the scripture, the exodus event is a hinge moment. It is a pivotal moment where God is now acting on the promise. And what is this promise? Well, God is making good to provide a deliverer in shadow form and type form. That deliverer is Moses. He's going to provide a deliverer who's going to rescue his people. He's taking them out of Egypt. He's going to destroy the army, which we'll see in this parting. And then he's going to restore them. He's driving them toward Eden and the Garden of Eden. The promised land is this place of rest. And God's design is that we might know him. We might know him. We might know that he is Yahweh. That's his personal name. He is Yahweh. And we know from John 8, Jesus is that Yahweh. Jesus is God. But God's design is that we might know him, and it is through this knowing, as we know God, that he is honored, that he is glorified. So God is glorified when we know him as Yahweh. And when we think of the Exodus event, just by way of, of literary or historical context, theological context, we often think of the Exodus as the parting of the Red Sea. But the Exodus moment includes the plagues, the ten plagues, the ten signs and wonders, the death of the firstborn. The Exodus moment includes that Passover offering, which God sees, and that's, that offering atones, it placates, and it expiates, and it removes sin, and then the parting of the Red Sea. All those moments are included in this Exodus. And we also need to see, when we study the Exodus, how that's a type or shadow. It's a type or shadow. It has import in that moment, but there's a substance or what is called an anti-type down the road. And the absolute and utter fulfillment of this shadow is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But God is taking them out of Egypt, and he's going to put them in Eden. But we find them in Exodus, and even for us personally, in the in-between. 
that Egypt is our justification, the Eden is our glorification, and this in-between is our sanctification. Every single one of us who are saved, who know Yahweh, who know Jesus, has been taken out of Egypt. We are all heading toward Eden, but right now we find ourselves in the in-between, the already and not yet. There is still this fuller expression down the road. God's story, everything we read in Exodus, is not because of what the Israelites themselves would do. It's because of what God is about to do. And God's redemptive purposes are always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Yahweh alone. That's always true. The Israelites and even an Egyptian who believed God as Yahweh, who would offer that offering, would have their sins forgiven, would have their sins atoned for. But that work is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Yahweh or Jesus alone. So let's begin by reading Exodus 14. I gave you some historical literary background. I'm going to read Exodus 14, 1 through 14, and then verses 26 through 31. There are several points that I'll make, but it all ties to this idea that God is about to be honored. He's about to be glorified. And how? By everyone acknowledging that he is Yahweh. The name of God is Yahweh. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory. I will get glory. I will be honored among Pharaoh, over Pharaoh, and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know, this is how God is about to get glory, that I am Yahweh. They will know that God's name is Yahweh. Remember, all those plagues were attacking Egyptian gods. And now they are about to find out, they are about to know that Yahweh is God. And in knowing that Yahweh is God, he's going to be glorified. Verse 5, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, and he took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? It is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, 
which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And then verse 26. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord, Yahweh, threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have in our possession, as of fellowship, your word. We ask that the Spirit of God would take the simple reading of the text and the study of it and do that work in us and through us to those around us that we cannot do. May we believe Jesus. May we see how you will work for us and that Jesus Christ is our sole hope in this life and in the life which is to come. So guide us in our moments. May we use them well. We do ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thought is this. The purpose of God is clear. When you look at Exodus chapter 14, 1 through 4, you recognize that God is telling them what is about to happen. In verse 1, it says, Yahweh spoke to Moses, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp. He's telling them what is about to happen. And then he does what he told them. And notice the intent of the text. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 4, listen to the language. It says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory. I will be honored over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know. It's almost as if this idea of glory and this idea of honor is synonymous with the idea of knowing. God is going to make his name known. He is going to be acknowledged by everyone. This is his purpose. This is his design that God is Yahweh. The Bible says that God's vision is that his name, his knowledge, his glory is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's where all of this is heading. So when we read the Exodus and we read these ideas of glory, honor, and knowing, that's God's vision. It's happening here in Egypt. And it's going to happen globally one day where everyone everywhere is going to bow their knee and confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, is God, and it will be to the glory of God the Father. That's what is going to happen. So the purpose of God is very, very clear. God is going to make his name known. I looked up online the most famous person in the world. And if I were to ask you, who do you think is the most famous person in the world that everyone everywhere would know? Now, I, I thought in my mind, well, everyone, at least in my context, is talking about our president, Donald Trump. I would think, well, surely everyone would know about our president, Donald Trump. But such is not the case, to my surprise. In 2019, it was The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. Now, I thought, well... How in the world does that happen? 
And then it's this uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. He's a soccer player. My grandson would know him quite well. But they do this based on uh, your uh, tweeting uh, followers. You know, the guy's got this uh, Ronaldo. Far, sorry if I, I sound uh, not sure what I'm talking about when it comes to these matters. But he has 197 million followers, and therefore he's one of the most famous people or knowable people uh, in uh, 2020. And then the most uh, recognizable brands, and I think most of us would, uh, uh, would acknowledge this, Apple, Google, if you're in any way connected to the Internet, Amazon, Microsoft, Coca-Cola. I'm glad a food item got in there. And then Samsung, Tokyo, and Mercedes-Benz. But I find it interesting, you know, this name recognition and branding. Well, that's an idea that we have inside our tax. What is God's purpose? What's driving all of this story forward? Why, in, in a sense, is God saving or redeeming us? It's that we might know him. And in knowing him, he gets the glory. He is honored by us acknowledging that he is Yahweh. That's the purpose of God to make his name known through which he will be glorified. That's what's taking place. In fact, if we looked at Exodus chapter 14, verses 17 and 18, listen to the language. And again, I am not pulling this out of a text that doesn't exist. The text is telling us this. The whole storyline is telling us this. Verse 17 of Exodus 14. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So the purpose of God is clear. He is going to make his name known. His glory is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. All the stories in Scripture point to this idea. We will know that he is Yahweh. The second thing I'm wanting us to know, not only is the purpose of God clear, but the enemy that Israel faced was real. It was a formidable opponent. It was an enemy that they themselves were incapable of conquering. Three things are noted. In chapter 14, verse 7, it says, And Pharaoh took 600 chosen chariots, and then all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So there was this formidable army in pursuit of the Israelites, and it was an army that they were incapable of defeating. And then in chapter 12, verse 37, the Bible says in verse 37, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides men and children. So they had, they had a significant horde of people, the Israelites. But chapter 13, verse 17 says, these were not soldiers. So you have this formidable army, but you have this woefully inadequate resource. The Israelites were incapable, they were incapable of defeating the Egyptians. We know that. And then you have this impassable barrier, and we, we know this when we talk about the parting of the Red Sea. And I, I think sometimes we think uh, it, it's like uh, just a, a simple body of water, but it wasn't simply a body of water, but an impassable barrier that separated the Israelites from Egypt. It extended from the Red Sea. There was this channel of lakes, so this barrier of water separated Egypt from everything that was east of them, and that's what the Israelites had to get through in order to be delivered. And that's what stood in front of them with this formidable opponent behind them, and their resources were woefully inadequate. They were not capable of saving themselves. 
Yeah, and I know you hear this all the time, and it seems to almost become overly redundant and perhaps white noise. But please understand, you can't. You can't. If we have anything in common with the Israelites, is our woefully inadequate resource to deliver ourselves from our problems. But God is able, and that's how we have this word of encouragement. The promise of God is always sure. But the intent here is to simply say, you can't. Israel cannot save itself. The third thing we see in the text, though, is that what you cannot do, God can. God can do this. The promises of God are indeed sure. Notice verse 13. So you have this formidable army behind, you have an impassable barrier in front, and you yourself are inadequate. You cannot cross that body of water. You cannot defeat this attacking army. But the promises of God are sure. Remember, the plan of God is clear. God has told them what he's going to do. So they should not be surprised by any of it. Yet the promises of God are sure. In verse 13, the Bible says, And Moses said to the people, and he says this to them, because this is what God spoke to him. Fear not. Fear is an emotion. Fear not. Stand firm in action. Hold your ground. Don't go back. And see, experience the salvation of Yahweh. And then now listen to this. You have this call to fear not, stand firm, and see. And then you have the reason as to why they should not fear, why they should hold fast. It says, For the Lord is going to work for you this day. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Wow. The Lord, Yahweh, is going to fight for you, and you have only to be silent. All you have to do is not fear, stand still, be silent. God is about to work in your behalf. I thought it was interesting, and and as I study the scripture, and I've been doing it for 40 years, but I continue to learn, and it seems that the Spirit of God continues to show me things or connect dots for me. Psalm 23, 1 is perhaps one of the most familiar psalms for all of us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I pass, verse 4, stanza 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. I shall not want, I shall not fear. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, those are not punitive rods and staffs for us, but they are protective for us. Because God is my shepherd. And by the way, I find this, this is where I I think, well, why didn't I think of this earlier? The Lord is in all capitals. So who is this Lord? Yahweh. In the New Testament, Yahweh will go by the name Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus in John 10 is going to identify himself as the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. Yahweh is my shepherd. Therefore, I shall not want. If Yahweh is truly my shepherd, then I as a sheep have no want. Because Yahweh is enough in this life and in the life which is to come. And when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because it is his rod and his staff that are comforting me. He is protecting me. He is providing for me. That same idea in Psalm 23 is built off of what we see in the Exodus. There's this continuity in Scripture that would seem to suggest to us that the Bible tells a single story and that the center of it is Jesus. 
there is this connection. So the call that Moses extends to the people, and they are, they are fearing greatly. He was told to tell them, don't fear. Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, for he is about to work in your behalf. Your greatest enemy is sin and death. And God answers that one question for us. God is faithful to his promise. Therefore, you and I need not fear. The consequence of God working in this text is that their enemies and fears are destroyed. God's power and glory are displayed. Their faith and belief are deepened and their worship and praise are demonstrated. That same type of cycle occurs again and again and again throughout Scripture. And that's where we are today. If I were to ask you to share one of your greatest fears that you've had in the last month, the last week, or the last day that's pressing on you, I would simply say to you that God is going to be enough for you in this life and the life which is to come. It doesn't mean that every Red Sea you have, he's going to part. Sometimes you are going to drown. But God is faithful to the promise. God is faithful to the promise. He is taking you out of Egypt. He's going to get you into Eden. And right now we exist in the in-between. He is still faithful and he is still providing in this context. God is making good in our story to provide a deliverer who will rescue his people, destroy the enemy, and restore them to the place of rest. And God's design in all of this is that we might know him. And in knowing, he is glorified. He is honored. The fourth thing I want to see is the Jesus connection. I hope that doesn't come as a surprise. The Son of God is powerful. When I I read Exodus 14, and I, I really believe that the Old Testament narrative, the Old Testament story is shadow, it's type, it culminates in the New Testament with the person and work of Jesus Christ. But I read chapter 14, verse 31, and I I found it interesting when it said, Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians, signs and wonders. So the people feared Yahweh. They feared God. They knew his name and they feared him. And they believed in Yahweh and, and this is what caught me off guard, and in his servant Moses. And I thought, well, why in the world does it include this statement about Moses? I mean, isn't it all about the Lord? Isn't it all about Jesus? Well, I think that inclusion of and his servant Moses is pointing us to this type or shadow. Just as Moses was used by God to lead his people to that promised land, so also Jesus, the greater than Moses, is going to be used by God to lead his people to the promised land. In verse 16 of Exodus 14, it says that Moses stretched out his hands. And then it's going to say in verse 26 that he stretches out his hands again. One is for the people's deliverance and the second is for the enemy's destruction. Jesus stretched out his hands. And he says in John 19, it is finished. And in that moment, the people of God are rescued and the enemies of God are destroyed. And what we see in shadow form, we will see in substance in Jesus Christ. And when we look at the totality of the Exodus, we see this shadow and then we see a substance. 
we've already noted and we need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ becomes this firstborn who bears our condemnation. He bears the judgment that you and I justly deserve. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6 tells us that it is our transgression, our iniquity that has been laid on him. Galatians 3.13 says that he bore in his body our sin. That's 1 Peter 2.24. Galatians 3.13 says he becomes the curse for us. He is our condemnation. He absorbs for us the just sentence against us. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus Christ in his offering cancels your sin debt. What he does for us, we cannot do for ourselves. But not only is he our plague, our condemnation, the one who takes the judgment, he is our Passover lamb. He is our justification. In Jesus Christ, the Father looks on us and passes over our transgression. Jesus Christ is our atonement. He covers our sin. So when the Father looks upon us, he sees his Son. And in seeing his Son, the wrath of God against us is satisfied. It's placated, the sense against us. So that wrath is nullified. It's done away with. Think about that. You and I might have an idea that God is mad at us. No. God's not mad at us as Christians. The unbelieving still bear the weight of that just sense. But those of you who have believed in Jesus, you have acknowledged that he is Yahweh, that he is Lord, that he is God, and you acknowledge that God has raised him from the dead, he becomes for you the Passover. Your sins are atoned or covered. The sense against you has been answered, and God's wrath against you has been satisfied, and it's been expiated, your sin. It's been removed as far as the east is from the west. It's been cast into the deepest sea. He is our condemnation. He is our justification. He is our sanctification. In the parting of the Red Sea, he becomes for us the one who answers the in-between. He's gotten me out of Egypt. He's leading me into Eden. But right now I exist in the in-between. Jesus Christ is our condemnation, our justification, our sanctification. And we stress this often. The gospel goes beyond our justification. It is what takes us from where we were to where we will be. During the in-between, he continues to cover, he continues to placate, he continues to remove all of our transgressions. The push and pull in the horizontal is always happening, but we are always falling forward. What an incredible thought. The last thing that I want to point out is that the people of God are predictable. We see that in chapter 15, verses 22 through 24. And again, think of all that's happening. We have a bang. The exodus is a bang. In chapter 15, verses 22 through 24, listen to what it says. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days, three days from this parting of the Red Sea in the wilderness, and they found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And Moses cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There's tons of shadow and type in that scenario. But here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to hear. 
Three days from the ten signs and wonders. Three days. Three days. From massive miracles. From a significant bang. Three days from a Passover offering that enabled a death angel to destroy to pass over and not destroy those who were justly deserving of destruction. Three days from the parting of the Red Sea. And what did the people of God do? They grumbled. They grumbled. And you think to yourself, if I saw all that, I'd be one of those who were saying, you know, you go, God. But that's not what we have. We have people who are grumbling. And as we saw with the Passover feast and how they were to keep that as an annual event, why, in order that they would not forget. And why do they have to have these visuals? Because they forget. Why the sacrifices? Why the feast days? Why all those rules and regulations that are going to be implemented in Exodus chapters 19 through 40? Why? Because we are so prone to wander. We are always forgetting. None of the rules and regulations were put in play to make their lives hard or difficult. We think, well, that law was so overbearing. The purpose of law was to remind them of story. They were not in play to make them unhappy. All of God's purposes are to direct them and us toward him for our joy. Thus, every day we have to come back to the story. Because everything in this tells us that we can't. But God can and Jesus did. We've got to come back to that every day. Because Jesus Christ is both the center and the source of the Christian life. So what do we do with the story? What do we do with this? Well, first and foremost, what God has done, he is doing. God will finish what he began. He put in play in type and shadow in the book of Exodus, this Exodus. And the fulfillment, the ultimate and absolute fulfillment of that moment is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is going to get us out of Egypt and he's going to place us in Eden. And right now, you and I live in the in-between. And right now, we need the gospel. We must be reminded that Jesus Christ is indeed enough in this life and in the life which is to come. Right now, we need to apply ourselves to the study of the scripture. Why? So that we might know. I mean, are we simply learning good information? Are we simply learning structure so that we might have knowledge? No, it is in knowing that the God we worship is Yahweh, is Jesus, brings honor and glory to his name. We live in a world where there are multiple competing voices, and those voices are being amplified everywhere all the time. Are you with me on this? But in the midst of all this noise, there is a God, and his name is Jesus. Jesus alone answers the one question that no one anywhere can answer for themselves. And it is the sin and death question. And any of you that have engaged anyone on these ideas or areas are looked upon as crazy. Are you telling me that it's that simple? And we're saying, yes, it's simple for you because all you have to do is give up. But it wasn't simple for him. He has done everything for us so that we might know him. And it is in the knowing that God is honored, that God is glorified. And right now, God is 
playing out his story in you and through you to those around you. You are a part of a larger storyline. What we do as individuals and as a community of faith is pushing the story forward. And what is God asking of us right now? He is asking of us right now to simply trust him. It is impossible for me to make application in every one of your lives. But no matter where you are right now dealing with whatever, what is God asking you to do? Trust him. Trust him. Do you understand that God provided a deliverer who has rescued you, he has destroyed the enemy, and he's restoring you to the place of rest? And God is glorified, God is honored, as the knowledge of his name continues to go outward. So the question that we are confronted with every day is simply this. Can I right now, in my situation, trust him? And I believe and hope and pray that the emphatic answer is yes. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to have the scripture in our hands and to read the story and hopefully learn a little more about how the exodus is a shadower type of a greater, truer, more complete exodus that took place at the cross. Thank you, Father, for Jesus who answers for us every question in the vertical. And we can, because of what he has done, say that he is enough in this life and the life which is to come. So, Father, in the midst of all of our struggle, in the midst of life, as people come to us who are suffering, who are confused, Father, may we simply point them to Jesus. May we help cancel out, as it were, all the white noise and speak truly, speak clearly that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus has been raised by the Father from the dead. Thank you, Father, for this moment. May we trust you even more today. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.